Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, we have a very special guest. His name is Michael L. Brown, or Dr. Michael L. Brown, and he's just published a book, which I finished this morning. Has God? The title of the book is, Has God Failed You? Finding Faith When You're Not Even Sure God is Real, published May 11th, 2021. And Mr. Brown is a Jewish believer in Jesus who came to faith in 1971 as a heavy drug user and a hippie rock drummer. And he holds a PhD in Near Eastern Languages and Literature, Literatures from New York University has written more than 30 books, including Wake Up Calls to the Church of America, scholarly monographs and commentaries on biblical subjects, a series of volumes on answering Jewish objections to Jesus and much discussed books on today's hottest cultural issues. He has spoken throughout America and in more than 30 countries, and he hosts the nationally syndicated talk, daily talk radio show, The Line of Fire. He's the founder and president of Fire School Ministry in Concord, North Carolina, and serves as a visiting or adjunct professor at a number of seminaries. So some of the titles of the books, the first book that I could find was titled Our Hands Are Stained with Blood, The Tragic Story of the Church and the Jewish People, published July 10th, 1992. And some of his other ones, which I briefly mentioned in the uh, in his intro paragraph, were Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, Volume 1, General and Historical Objections from 2000, The Real Kosher Jesus, Revealing the Mysteries of the Hidden Messiah of 2012, Another is, Can You Be Gay and Christian? Responding with Love and Truth to Questions About Homosexuality from 2014. The Fire That Never Sleeps, Keys to Understanding to Sustaining Personal Revival 2015. Job, The Faith to Challenge God from 2019. And then Resurrection, Investigating a Rabbi from Brooklyn, A Preacher from Galilee, and an Event That Changed the World from 2020. So those are just a few of his titles. He's written many other books, but uh, we don't have the time to enumerate those here. But we're going to talk again about this book, Has God Failed You? So, Dr. Michael L. Brown, are you there? Hey, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard your background, can you maybe add some other information that maybe I didn't cover in the intro and what and to detail what led you to write this book, Has God Failed You? Yeah, absolutely. So, as you mentioned, I came to faith in 71, heavy drug user, hippie, rock drummer, and you might wonder, well, you know, raised in a conservative Jewish home, your dad, lawyer in the New York Supreme Court, how in the world did you end up in the whole drug scene at that point? But it, it was the 60s. Uh, I, I saw my first rock concert at the age of 13, 1968, so Jimi Hendrix in concert. And because my Jewish roots weren't that deep, you know, it was my bar mitzvah earlier in the year was more of a social event for me than a spiritual event. The whole rock scene, the, the power of rebellion, the, the whole appeal to the flesh. I just dove in. So started getting high at 14, was shooting heroin at 15. And, you know, that was my course. I was going to be a rock star. I was going to be a drug user. And I thought that would be just great and cool. But my two best friends came to faith. They, they got born again, the fellow band members. And God really started to deal with their hearts. They started to change the way they were living. So I didn't like that. I went to this little church where they come to faith and I went to pull them out. And instead, the Lord began to deal with me, convict me of my sin and transform me. By the end of the year, I was a, I was a new person. And my dad was, was thrilled to see that I was off drugs. But you know, he said, Michael, we're Jews. We don't believe in this. So he brought me to meet the local rabbi. The local rabbi befriended me and immediately began to challenge my faith and bring me to meet other rabbis. So from early on, I was having my faith challenged, at least intellectually. And then I started college and then got bombarded there, you know, with the secular mindset and professors that, that mocked what was in the Bible. And all the way along to getting my PhD, 
I studied with people who didn't believe what I believed. Now, many were friendly and gracious scholars, but, but I was constantly challenged. From that, the rabbinic community, that everything I believed was going to be intellectually challenged. And along the way, as a Jewish believer in Jesus, getting confronted with objections, attacks on the faith, I didn't have answers for them. Uh, you know, I, I knew that the Lord had changed my life, and I said, God, I, I just want to pursue you and your truth wherever it leads. But these rabbis had these strong objections. I couldn't find anyone with answers. And it was a very difficult thing. It was a painful thing to deal with. The more I studied, the more I learned, the clearer it became that we were on the side of truth. But I remembered that, that challenge, that pain. And then over the years, believing God to heal someone and they die, praying for something that doesn't come to pass, we all go through disappointment. And then we're in kind of a perfect storm now today where you don't just have the normal challenges to the faith, but it seems that things that, that kids were getting hit with on, on college campuses and attacks on the God of the Bible and philosophical objections to, to our faith, they're now trickling down. So kids like 12, 13 years old are having to deal with these. We have a, we have a culture that's changed its viewpoint. And, and the activism of the left has been such that if you differ you're now a, a hater, you're a bigot, and, and the God of the Bible is hateful and bigoted. And, and then there's just so much sin and temptation available today. You know, a 15-year-old kid can access stuff on the internet, you know, all kinds of porn and stuff that when I was 15, I didn't even know it existed. You know, an eight-year-old can access it. So there, and all the distractions of the society and, and so on and so forth, it's kind of a perfect storm of a crisis of faith and many are losing their way. Add in public scandals with major Christian leaders. Add in Christian leaders publicly saying, I'm not a Christian anymore. And it's a real time of a crisis in faith. And, and I wrote, Has God Failed You? Finding faith when you're not even sure God is real to try to reach people who are struggling. Many times in our church environments, we don't have a place where people can come with their questions and doubts. You know, many times kids are not free to tell their parents, I don't think I believe this stuff that you believe. So we have to have an environment where people can come with their pain, their disappointment, their questions. Even some who've left their faith. I was interacting with an intellectual the other day, used to believe, now is known for being an atheist. But he said to me, I, I would love to have my faith back, but, but intellectually he can't. So I wanted to reach people, some who are struggling, some who've lost their faith, be it for emotional reasons, be it for intellectual reasons, and say, hey, it looks and feels as if God failed you, but I want to show you he's there and he's good. Right, and you, in some of your chapters, like uh, you allow or you title the chapter Permission to Doubt, so it's okay to doubt and ask questions. And also you address kind of maybe some of these people have a wrong theology. Maybe that's why they think God failed them. Can you kind of discuss that kind of uh, environment, like you said, that allows people to ask questions? Sure. We know that, that the disciples were rebuked for doubt in the New Testament. We know that James or Jacob, as he really is, that that he rebukes those who doubt is double-minded, but that that's the doubt of someone who should know better. That's the doubt of someone who just can't make up his mind, am I going to trust God or not? But Jude, verse 22, says, have mercy on those who doubt. And in Mark 9, 
the the man whose son was was having these seizures, these demonic seizures, when Jesus asked him if he believes, he says, Lord, I, I believe, help my unbelief. So yeah, I believe, but I oh, I'm struggling. So we need to to have a setting. So let's say a youth group where a kid can come to the youth pastor and say, I I, I don't I don't agree with you. I you know I I, I want to believe, but it it seems like you know you're you're like just bashing gay people with what you believe, and and rather than the youth pastor getting defensive, saying, well let's let's talk about that, or or someone you know saying, hey I, I'm in college now, and I got this professor, and and he's explaining all, you know that the New Testament can't be trusted, and it's got all these contradictions in it, and and I don't know he's pretty persuasive, he's really brilliant. Rather than saying, well, look, you just need to believe the Bible. What, you don't trust God? Is that it? You know better than God? Instead of some answers like that, which is just going to drive that person away. So, yeah, you know, there's some really strong questions that people, let, let's dig into this together. Let, let's, let's see if there's solid answers or not, because we only want to believe the truth. Or, or someone just saying, you know, I, what happened? Look, the promises are here. I prayed. Nothing. Does that mean my faith isn't real or God doesn't care about me or the, the Bible's not true. And, and rather than sometimes because we're a little insecure, we have to put up this wall of no God's faith. Just you never question God. Instead, we should say, yeah, it, it, it looks like it feels like that. Doesn't it? it, it and you know, the Bible even talks about that. The, there are verses in the Bible where people question God, God put that in there to say, I knew you were coming. God put that in there to say, I knew you were going to experience this. I want you to know you're not alone, but let's get to the end of the story, and there you'll find faith, comfort, and wholeness. Right, and that's kind of, it's a universal condition of humanity to think to doubt. I think that all people who are in the Christian faith have gone through those periods, but you also kind of address the doubt with also the efficacy of prayer. Can you talk about that in your personal life? Yes. So there's a chapter early on in the book, Does Prayer Really Work? Because look, the promises are amazing. You know, ask and it shall be given. You seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be open. Everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. The one who knocks the door will be open. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. Delight yourself in the Lord who will give you the desires of your heart. And, you know, verse after verse, calling us to pray, saying, God will answer. Call to me and I'll show you great and wonderful things that you don't know. One after another. So we pray and we believe, you know, child is diagnosed with a terrible illness. Doctors say it's going to be fatal. We say, not with my God. He's faithful. He gave us this child. He blessed us. The church prays. The church fasts. You cry out. The child dies. And I can't imagine the devastation of that. I mean, I can imagine the faith devastation, but now the emotional devastation of losing a child. And But the Bible seems so clear. So some people just say, well, I guess God doesn't heal at all. And, and maybe we're just misreading the Bible. But boy, it, it seemed clear. So what do we, what do, we do with that? So wh what I explain in this chapter is that first we, we need to mark down the times that God does miraculously answer. We need to journal it because we, we often forget the things that he does do. We often forget the amazing things he has accomplished. So Let's, let's journal those things he has done and kind of make them foundation stones so that when we go through the valley, the dark time, the difficult time, we can say, wait, wait, God really showed himself there. God really did answer that. Then the second thing is ask yourself, 
Why did Jesus himself teach us a parable in Luke 18 that people should always pray and not cave in, not lose heart, not give up hope? Why, why did he do that? Obviously, he's telling us that we will go through seasons where it looks as if God's not answering us, where it looks as if he's forgotten about us and he's paying no attention. Jesus himself, who came down from heaven, is telling us these things. Now, you say, well, well I, don't, I don't get it. It's like hit or miss. No, no, here's the thing. There are times when God answers in miraculous, extraordinary ways, and we need to remember those. But God is also building a relationship with us. And the fact is, in this world, we will not always see miracles. In this world, we will not always get answers. But in the midst of it, God is going to develop our character. God is going to deepen our walk with him. God is going to give us more compassion, help us persevere. In other words, prayer is about also building a relationship with God. We just think of it as this thing where you, you push a button and get answers, and that's it. No, it's, it's deeper than that. And if we can understand God's purposes and prayer, now we can deepen our relationship with him. Even when we don't see an answer, we can commune with him. We can talk to him about it. Like, I don't understand. It seems that this most important thing I, I don't get an answer to, and these other things don't seem important. I do get answers to. You pour out your heart. You commune with him. You develop relationship. And over time, you discover how amazing he is and how good he is and how faithful he is. And even if we don't get answers to all of our questions, we still will know God and we will see his hand in definite ways. Right. And it's, it's not always through some miraculous intervention either. Sometimes it's a simple thing. Sometimes it's a still small voice gives you advice. It could be anything, really, the response, not always. But you've had miraculous kind of responses to prayer in your life, too, though. And you tell stories about that in your book as well as other people who have had miracles happen. So they do happen in response to prayer, right? Yeah. In other words, I, I could simply say, hey, God doesn't heal. That, that's past. That doesn't happen anymore. God doesn't work miracles like this. That was just in Bible days. And, and in, in point of fact, uh, we can't expect anything like this. Just trust God and go on with things. But that wouldn't be true either because he does intervene. We live with a certain holy tension. In, in other words, I've, I've been with people and we've been praying for a miracle and the miracle doesn't happen. And it seems to be now they're left in a crisis and then in the midst of the crisis, God shows himself super powerfully. You can't deny that God's with you in the crisis, but he lets you get in the crisis. Like, I don't understand that, but I can't deny the reality of God. And I can't deny that he's being good to me in the midst of this. And, and that's, it's, see, it's not a blind faith. It's not some trust where we, we just shut our minds off and deny reality. It's a fact that God makes himself real. God works in our lives in certain ways that are undeniable. I, I was on the air the other day having a friendly debate with a former Muslim who's now a, a passionate atheist, a very, a very decent guy. And, and one reason he wanted to debate me was because he knew I, I'd be decent and friendly in return. And I was just explaining, hey, in my own life, and I said to all the atheists watching, I said, this may mean nothing to you. You'll, you'll probably mock it. But I just want you to know in my own life, I've experienced God in undeniable ways. And I gave a list of things especially as a brand new believer. And, and one of them was, was I had a bad case of hives. So it's just this terribly painful itch. You know, and you get these red like blisters all over your body. And, 
so it was right before I came to faith. I'd gone to a doctor. My parents brought me to a doctor and so on. And he gave me this medicine to take. And it took, it took 24 hours before it took effect. And then he said, after seven days, all symptoms should be gone and you're done with the medicine. Well, sure enough, by the, you know, after seven days, all symptoms gone. Now I'm a brand new believer at this point. I'm going to, to, to high school, which is about a half hour from my home, the school we had to go to. I start feeling an itch in my arms. It's winter. I've got long sleeves on. I roll up my coat, my sleeves. I thought, oh, no, starting to break out all over. I thought, well, I don't have any medicine on me. Even if I did, it takes 24 hours to have effects. So I'm starting to get in a panic because this was, you know, it was miserable. And I get to school a couple of minutes later and, and I, I pull my sleeves. Oh, no, it's spreading all over my arm, down my back. It's just horrible. And another guy came in, also a brand new believer. And I said to him, hey, pray with me, man. Just so we, we just sat in the corner of the room, prayed together for a minute. Room started to fill with people. Next thing I realized, wait, wait a second. I rolled my sleeves up. All, everything gone, all the blisters gone, literally in a matter of seconds. Well, the, you know, as a brand new believer, that was an incredible experience. So when I shared that, people mocked me. Oh, God heals you rich, but he lets children die of leukemia. Oh, God heals you rich, but he doesn't do this. He allows you know, this one to be born you know, blind and so on. And I said, hey, it was just a sign to me. It was a sign of God's goodness. I've prayed for many people with cancer over the years, and very few have been healed. Some have, miraculously, but most haven't. That's the reality. But he made himself real at a time when it was crucial for me, and that just helped me to trust him more for the rest of my life. And can you also address kind of what some people think? One reason that they become atheists is maybe they have their impression of what being a believer is may have been skewed by by uh, wrong theology. Can you address that? Yes. So that's a whole chapter. Perhaps it was wrong theology that failed you. There is a certain stream of Christianity, especially known as word of faith, where, you know, it's caricature, just name it and claim it. And it basically says, if you're a true believer, if you have enough faith, you'll never get sick. If you're a true believer, you will prosper financially. And that will be a sign of your faithfulness. If you give, you will always get a financial reward, etc. It's like a formula. As some have said, I got the word working for me, you know, and, and this is the way it's going to be. I declare it and it's such. And there is some truth in the midst of it in terms of God being a gracious healer and, and God pouring out his grace as we're generous to him and others. He's generous to us, but it's overstated. It's exaggerated. And it presents a, a dangerous picture of things that has no theology of suffering. It has, it has no concept of when things don't go your way or, or how this message relates to, to people in developing countries living in, in horrific poverty and massive persecution. And, and the fact that, you know, say COVID-19 is taking a whole lot of Christians, a whole lot of Christians who love Jesus, a whole lot of Christians who were believing for healing taking them too. And when you have this superficial view of things, when suffering comes, when hardship comes, when it doesn't fall into place the way it always has. I, I was just uh, listening to a, a dear brother, a friend of mine, I mean, a really, really good, solid guy. And he's taught kind of a word of faith emphasis in, in certain aspects of life and ministry. And now uh, he has been sick persistently and his wife, and he said, we've never gone through anything. We're holding to our faith. We've never gone through anything like this. Well, 
it, it does impact you when, when you push the button and nothing happens. So maybe your thought process is, I got saved like this. I came to faith based on this. I read the Bible, and this is how I see it. If this is not true, none of it is true. So rather than changing their theology, they end up throwing out the Bible. They end up throwing out God because that's, that was the foundation of how they came to faith, those teachings. When they find that it's not true or it's, quote, not working for me, they conclude the whole thing is not true, which is what makes it so dangerous when we have a false theology. Right. And I mean, I think some of those false theologies are, are kind of sure coding it. And there's always that kind of a uh, problem of suffering that sometimes pastors and other people don't really address. So they don't. So when that happens, like just like you said, some people reject or retract themselves. Can you talk about the problem, what the biblical, the actual real biblical context of suffering is? Yes. Well, th there, there are two major sides to suffering. There's suffering in the world because of sin. I don't mean your sin, my sin, but because of sin, because of sin entering the world through Adam and Eve, and then it's being a fallen race. So there's going to be death. There's going to be sickness. There's going to be pain. And then human beings are going to do terrible things to other human beings. So every day there's massive suffering all over the planet. There are children dying of starvation. There are famines. There are earthquakes. There are atrocities taking place. There's terrible human suffering. And that's, that's in the world because of sin. And the only way that will ultimately stop is when Jesus returns. And that's one reason we long for his return. And we do what we can to ease human suffering by helping those in need until that time. But then there's the suffering that comes for righteousness. There's the suffering that comes because of our faith. There's the suffering of rejection, of hatred, there's the suffering of imprisonment, of torture, of martyrdom. There's the, the suffering of having to swim against the tide and go against the grain. And most of the time, when the New Testament talks about our calling to suffering or suffering for righteousness, that's what it's talking about. It's suffering persecution and opposition for the faith. Even, even as we're talking now, Christians in Nigeria are being kidnapped or being tortured or being killed simply because they're Christians. And, and even as we talk, kids in school, Christian kids in school are being mocked and, and marginalized because of their faith. That's a suffering that we're called to and we're going to have in this world. The other suffering is, is a simply unavoidable thing because of the pain of a fallen world. And in the midst of it, God wants to give us hope and God wants to give us comfort and God wants to help uh, use us to help those who are hurting but for many suffering itself means there can be no god and that that's why i deal with the issue of of the problem of suffering and and the problem of evil because people would say if if the god that we talk about is really good if the god that we talk about is who we claim him to be then then there can't be evil suffering pain in the world because it means he's either not all good or not all powerful or not all knowing. And their answer to that is he is all good. He is all powerful. He is all knowing. And he created a world giving us freedom, giving us autonomy, knowing what the consequences would be, but knowing that through it all, he would ultimately do something forever and ever and ever that would be worth it all. 
So we, we need to, to tackle this philosophically, and then we need to come with a solid biblical response. And I think it's important too, and it maybe go back to your theme of like wrong theology is that Christ, even in the New Testament says, you, you know, you're going to be persecuted for my name's sake. So there's real things in there that may not be emphasized in certain environments that the promises aren't all, uh, you know, ec uh, religious ecstasy, you know, so there'll be problems. And that maybe that's a reason why people think God may have failed them is they aren't getting that aspect of the gospel or of Christ's teachings. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And look, in America, we can get away with that more than, say, you could right now in, in Nigeria or more than you could in right, right North now, Korea. Right. right. Or more than you could in Afghanistan or other parts of the world. In other words, where the hardship for Christians is such, where the, 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 the miraculous answer to prayer is that we didn't starve to death today. You know, because God provided, uh, you know, a little extra rice for us. The, the miraculous answer is is that uh, they stopped torturing the person earlier. You know, and you know those are the types of things. When I was in India a few years back, and I've I've been there twenty seven different trips over the years. Got dear dear friends and coworkers there, and and have literally washed the feet of martyrs, widows, people that we sent out to preach. You know, watch wash the feet of the widow afterwards, after the husband was killed for preaching the gospel. And I was talking to a few hundred pastors, church planters, and I said to them, how many of you have been physically attacked or beaten for preaching the gospel? I don't mean verbally, but physically. And I would say about three quarters of them raised their hands. But that's not what was significant. They raised their hands as if I'd said, how many of you had breakfast today? It's like, hmm, nobody... <laughs> Wait, wait, you're not like making a big deal about this? Yes. No, what happens? And, and then people being sent out to go into dangerous areas, and you know you may be beaten, yes. You know you may die, yes. But we're followers of Jesus. Like, that's a different brand than what we have in America. Yeah. So things tend to be easier for us here. Uh, obviously, every society has its own challenges, but things tend to be easier here. Preaching a prosperity message is, works a lot better here than in another part of the world where prosperity is the chicken didn't die, so we have a we have another egg, you know. Right. Uh, so we can be very superficial, and and yes, there are good qualities in American Christianity. We can be very generous people and gracious people in other ways, but but yeah, our it's often been said that American Christianity is three thousand miles wide and one foot deep, and and. Again, many people fall away for understandable reasons. In other words, that the hell they went through, the losses they suffered, the the lack of support they got in their church. I, I understand why they feel as if God failed them, and and we've got to be there with compassion and help them. You know, when the bottom falls out. But on no. the other hand, there are plenty of a, plenty of people just walk away because hey, we we were superficial to start. We didn't get the full the full teachings. A lot of people don't know how big that the church is in India, or and the persecutions are in China too. One of the largest Christian populations in the world as well. So, uh, really remarkable things are happening worldwide. But yeah, we've had it very soft here in the U.S. I totally one hundred percent agree with you. Uh, so, you can you expound upon why the problem of evil, and can you talk about? why understanding what that is is very important to somebody who's in the faith? Yeah, so there are many atheists 
who are just God mockers. And you know, that's their present stance. You know, the summary is there is no God and I hate him, as, as others have said. But then there are other atheists, you know, very sensitive, hearted, and they're thinking, okay, the, the picture you're giving me of God is that he is so ultimately good and compassionate and loving and kind that there's no way to reconcile that with, with a, a baby that's born that is going to suffer six months of, of living hell on earth and, and then is going to die, and that's it. There, there, there's no way that the God you talk about is compatible with a picture of, of human grief and pain over the centuries. So therefore, I have to conclude there is no God. In other words, they're, they're not being mockers. They're just saying, it. I, I'm taking seriously this picture you're painting of God, and this is just not lining up. So the first thing I want to challenge when they talk about a problem of evil is, what's evil? How can you define evil? How can there be such a thing as good or evil when, according to you, we are, we are just the end products of a completely random, unguided evolutionary process, which comes down to the survival of the fittest. There is no evil. Is, is it evil when a lion kills a zebra to eat? That's not evil. Is it evil when a spider catches a fly? That's not evil. That's just survival of the fittest. So, you know, when people say there's so much injustice in the world, well, what's injustice? Who, who gave human beings any right to anything? We're, we're just a little higher up on the food chain. That's all. So even concepts of good or evil, I want to ask them, well, where'd you get that from? That sense of righteous indignation, the sense of things shouldn't be the way they are. That's because you're created in God's image. Okay, well, that doesn't answer the question of why the evil, why the pain. So I'll ask someone, and again, I do all this in, in the book, Has God Failed You? I'll ask them, okay, would you rather exist or not exist? Well, most all of us say exist, otherwise we would take our lives. The, the, the fact that people suffer and go through all kinds of pain and very few take their lives percentage-wise is an indication that, that we prize our existence. Okay, next question. If I could push a button and you would never have any more pain, trouble, hardship the rest of your life, but you will never make another decision. I'm going to press a button so that you'll be happy all the time. <clears throat> uh, no risk. Nothing will ever go wrong. You'll never suffer pain, depression, but you can make no decisions ever. You're pre-programmed to just be happy. People would reject that. Why? Because we cherish our existence and we cherish our freedom. And, and those are the very foundations of human existence without which we would not have problems like evil and suffering and pain. In, uh, in other words, this is the consequence of God creating us with freedom. You say, okay, I accept that, but if he foresaw there would be so much pain, suffering, and he's so good, then why would he create us like this? Ah, because he's giving every one of us an opportunity. Every human being ultimately has an opportunity to receive God or reject him, to seek him or neglect him. Every single human being. And what God is going to bring out of this is something so far beyond anything we could dream of that the sufferings, pain, hardship Will, will be completely forgotten. And as a sign to us in the midst of it, God comes into our world through Jesus. God comes directly into our world and dies on our behalf through his son to enter into our suffering and say, hey, I'm going to provide the ultimate antidote, which is my son 
dying on the cross so you can be forgiven, you can be free. In other words, it's not, not a God who's distant, but a God who suffers right with us to bring us through. When you understand that, you get an even greater revelation of the love of God, the goodness of God, the kindness of God, and in the midst of the pain, you get great hope. Right, and you, you include in your book all these tracks from Paul, the, the suffering and the pain that they're going through. I mean, he went through people trying to kill him, beat him in jail, all these things, and he says this is just a short amount of time compared to the future. So at least from a Christian perspective, I think that that's – important way to look at kind of the, the sufferings that all of us go through. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I also think the, the evil, the interesting element of evil, you're right, though, it's interesting that how the Darwinian view is, but I think it goes back all the way to pre-Eden or the or knowledge of the, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. So I think that that's inherent in the human condition is really being able to ascertain that. That's why so many cultures, morality are fairly similar. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, we're created in the image of God. And with that means that there is a consciousness. The, the fact that around the world, there are certain things that are universally considered moral or immoral. Obviously, there are differences from culture to culture, but there are other things that are universally recognized as wrong. The question is based on what? Where did that ethic come from in human beings. And again, you don't have a concept of right or wrong among dogs, among cats. You don't have a concept of right or wrong among lizards or snakes or whatever, but you have a concept of right and wrong among human beings. Where does that come from? It, it is a profound argument that we are created in the image of God. And yet the fact we do things that we know are wrong, the fact that we condemn someone else for doing what we justify in our own lives, the fact that, that, we, we do so much that's in blatant violation to God's goodness is an indication that we're creating his image and yet fallen. Right. And I think that your section in the book, like, I think that actually pertains to that section, like whether the Bible, the God of the Bible is a bigot or uh, cruel. And I think it pertains to good and evil. So the judgments of God, like take, for example, Sodom and Gomorrah, he viewed them as being so fallen that, they just he destroyed them in the plains, right? So, I think that people are looking at that as, as a very cruel, arbitrary God when he's he's making decisions based, or even Noah's flood, for example, making decisions based upon people's choice to do good or evil. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And let's let's add to that. Uh, and I have two chapters in the book dealing with objections to to the Bible and the God of the Bible, especially the Old Testament. If you see that God waits hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before carrying out judgment, that he, he lets things get to a certain point where it's even creating hardship and pain for others. But he's like, no, I have to wait until the guilt reaches this level, then I'll deal with it. Uh, that's telling you something about his patience. Why does he wipe out the world in Noah's day and only preserve eight to start a new world. Well, because if he didn't, soon enough, the human race would have completely wiped out itself and there would have been nobody. There would have been nobody on the planet. So ultimately, as, as harsh as these things can seem, it, it's like a, a doctor having to operate. Uh, you know, I remember seeing a case, just a, a mom 
going in for some type of minor treatment, some minor ailment. Next thing, there's an infection spreads through her body. Doctors didn't see it coming. The only way she can survive is to have to amputate all her limbs. I mean, who could imagine that you go in healthy, you know, mom, married, kids, all this, and you come out completely dependent for the rest of your life. You come out without any limbs that saved her life. It was an act of compassion to save her life. So it all depends on our perspective. Even when we talk about gay lesbian issues, you know, why is God so bigoted? Why is he so small-minded? Or maybe we're just misreading the Bible. When you understand the beauty of his creation and, and the intent of his design, designing male, female, and, and doing what he did and why he, he did it, and, and the uniqueness of each one and the, how the relationships are formed and how reproduction happens and all this. And then you say, when you violate that, you're violating God's best. That's not bigotry. That's not hatred. That's just saying God's ways are best. So, so much of this is perspective. But look, I wrote the book not to win an argument. I, I wrote the book not to, to, to go one up on someone like, aha, you have an argument, but I have a better argument. But to say, yeah, strong points, strong questions, honest questions. Here's some honest answers. And then ultimately, the key is, if I can connect that person with God, there can be an encounter with God afresh. All the questions go away. Right. Well, that's a great way to end it. I highly recommend this book. The title of it, Has God Failed You? Finding Faith When You're Not Even Sure God is Real. Where can, where's the best place to uh, obtain this book, Michael? Uh, they can get it anywhere online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Christian Book, or our website where they'll find thousands of hours of free resources. Ask drbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. And thanks for taking the time to read the book. Appreciate oh, my it. My pleasure. Well, it's great to have you. Thanks so much. Again, the title of the book is God Failed You, Finding Faith When You're Not Even Sure God is Real by Dr. Michael L. Brown. Thank you so much. God bless you. You're very God welcome. Bless, God bless you too.